The second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, starting uh, chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The here, this is a, a place that I came across uh, on my travels once, and um, uh, quite an incredible, uh, you, do, you have to stop to take the photograph, you know, so it's one of these things. I didn't have a shot, you need to know. Um, but um, these tightrope walkers are absolutely amazing. They're thousands of feet up uh, in the Alps, and they're called highliners, that's, uh, that's the technical term. And there's three things, two things that you need to be able to do. It's three if you include sheer stupidity. Um, one is an incredible sense of balance, not falling to the left, not falling to the right. And the other is the tightrope. And the tightrope's called a tightrope because it's tight. So it has high tension in it, which stops it kind of, it minimizes the wobble, if you like, and just makes it a fractional, fractionally easier <laughs> for, for these guys. And um, there's so many things in life where there are tensions um, that are actually good. Uh, another one would be a guitar string. So a guitar string, if it's not tuned, if it's not taught, then you can't hear the notes. Uh, but when it is taught and it's tuned, then you get a nice note out of it. But if you over tense, tense it, then it snaps. So it's trying to find that kind of middle road uh, with that. Likewise, in our, our working lives, um, somebody's graphed our performance from low to high uh, against the stresses of life and stresses in the workplace. And if there is no pressure and no, just no, no, no goals to go for or anything, then eventually what we do is we get bored. We just feel unchallenged, underchallenged, and uh, we kind of don't do a lot. We chill out and we just ultimately get bored. Um, if there's too much challenge in life, then uh, things go bad. Um, and we become, you know, it can be our relationships that fall apart, it can be our health that falls apart, it can be our mental health that falls apart. And the sweet spot, the place where we are most productive is in the middle, where there's, there's good goals, there's good challenge, um, and that is when we are the most productive. And so all of these things, uh, the, the kind of the, the best place to be is in the middle where between, the, between the tensions. And so in Christian life as well, and in our faith, there are tensions. Um, some of them are about holding the balance, so not going too far one way or going too far to the other way, but finding uh, the middle roads uh, as we do that. Some of them are things that seem to be pulling in opposite directions, uh, like the tightrope, and actually we need both hands. It may seem like a paradox at times, but we need both of them um, in our lives. And the Christian life is full of that, so we've, I think we've looked at things like to be poor and yet to be rich. Um, we've, uh, we could look at things like um, the now of God's kingdom, the blessing, healing that we can have now, and yet the not yet of heaven um, has yet to come, and we hold those two together. We can go through suffering, and yet we can be joyful. Uh, it seems like a paradox, and yet that's possible. We hold grace and truth together. We find power with God's word and God's spirit uh, coming together. And so this series is called And, or the ampersand, the, the symbol, if you like, for And, embracing the tensions of life and of faith. Some of you may not be interested in this, but uh, where, does the word, where does the ampersand come from? It comes from the Latin et, which means and. So we get things like et cetera, which means and the rest. Um, and uh, the, the, the Latins, uh, or the, the Romans or whatever, put these two letters together to make one symbol. And then a little bit of flourish, uh, the E and the T looks a bit like that. And that is kind of where we've developed the ampersand from. 
Um, in fact, it was the 27th letter of the alphabet during the 1800s, you had to learn it at school. And uh, it, the phrase comes from this, it becomes and per se and, uh, which literally means the symbol and um, is by itself the word and, so the squiggle equals and, that's all it means. So I totally used this information, but I knew someone would ask me at the end, save you Googling it at the end, so that's uh, where it comes from. So today our, our focus is wide and narrow, narrow and wide. How do we hold these two together when it comes to God? How easy is it to find God? So I'm going to start with wide because God's love is wide. You know, the, 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 the Sunday school uh, uh, song goes wide, wide as the ocean. You know, it's God's love is wide. We've read from Ephesians 3. I pray that you will grasp how wide and how long and how deep is the love of uh, Christ. God's love is wide, it extends across the entire world. Um, it includes everybody um, who has ever been created, says the psalmist. Okay, God has never made a person that he didn't love and doesn't love unconditionally uh, on this planet. His love is everywhere, there's no place where you can go where God isn't. Um, and as you read the pages of the Gospels and of Jesus' life, we're continually drawn to this scandalous inclusion that Jesus has for people, for, the, for the, including the least, the last, and the lost. You know, he sends out his people to the highways and byways to go and find and bring in uh, people and invite them to all that God has. We read of how far he will go and how wide he will search in the three parables in Luke chapter 15. And um, there's the parable of the, the woman with the lost coin who sweeps everywhere to find this, this lost coin. Um, it then goes on into the, the, the parable of the lost sheep and how the shepherd will leave the 99 to go and find the one that's somewhere stuck in a ravine and will search everywhere for it. And then we get the third parable, the parable of the lost son and the father who deems it wiser to kind of stay at home but he's scanning the horizon every single day, every single morning, waiting for his son to return. It warrants an all-out search, and it's, it's, it speaks of God's heart to search for people. And then each of those stories has this great celebration of joy um, when someone's found. God's love is extravagantly wide um, in every aspect. Jesus tells another parable, the parable of the sower, um, which many of us may be familiar with. And uh, the farmer sows his seed, and that seed lands on four types of ground. Some lands on the path, and the birds eat it up. Uh, some lands on the rocky soil, and the sun uh, scorches it because it has no roots. It kind of grows up a little bit and then, then dies off. And the soil with thorns, so it grows again, but the thorns and, and weeds grow up to choke it. And then the good soil, uh, where the, we get fruitful heads of wheat. And the seed of God's word is to be sown widely. Okay, almost wastefully. Okay, sow this seed on good soil and on bad soil. Okay, sow it everywhere is the kind of heart, uh, one of the hearts of this message. And no matter how well you sow the seed of God's good news, there will be these four types of responses in people's lives. Um, although some of the responses initially look good, it's only the one type of soil that is good and bears fruit, bears a head of, of wheat, and that is the good soil. But if we sow seeds, then we should probably shouldn't expect better results than this. So you might take from this that at best you're going to get a 25% return on your sowing. Okay? That might be pretty good. If we're expecting better than that, we're probably deluding ourselves. But what we are to do is we are to, to share God's word. We're to take God's message out. But we're to be prepared for both the fruitful response and the non-fruitful response. That isn't our task. Our task is simply to sow uh, seed as widely as possible. I can remember uh, one year I went on a, a mission trip 
and I was, it was called Love Europe, and I was working in Glasgow, and I was working amongst the Asian community, and the people who came to faith, one was a Latin American, and one was an African. Okay, you can never predict what God is gonna do. And so often we try to predict who will respond and who won't respond, and we make the choice on someone else's behalf rather than just sharing it with whoever and wherever and we might have the opportunity. Um, and so uh, God's love is wide. And um, we've had a number of things I just reminded this week. You know, we've had this great little prayer thing, uh, praying for the Muslim world during Ramadan. Um, just like, it's a great resource, and it's, it takes the love of God wider as we pray for them. We've just been reminded this week of the, the, the football team, Real Riverside football team, which Martin is the captain of. And uh, there's some, some characters in that team who are so far uh, from God, and yet it's a place where people can connect uh, with them. Um, you know, Bourneville Festival, another opportunity coming up, which I know a number of you are going to be involved in. It's just an opportunity for us to share uh, with the community outside, beyond ourselves, something uh, of God's love and grace um, for them. So Matthew records this parable of the sower in chapter 13 of his gospel. And then he continues with a related kingdom parable, the parable of the weeds, verses 24 to 30, or the wheat and the tares. Um, Jesus told another parable. Uh, the kingdom of heaven uh, is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And he went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And later Jesus goes on to explain uh, this parable that, you know, that he is the sower, the field is the world um, in which we all live and work, the good seed are the people of the kingdom, the weeds are those who are not of the kingdom but of the evil one, and the harvest is the end of the age, uh, the end of, of human history when we give account before God, and uh, the harvesters are the angels who come to separate the wheat from the, the weeds and to gather the, the sons and people of God, and they'll shine like the sun, he says. So although Jesus sows good seeds, somebody's planting weeds. And overnight they grow up alongside each other. But what Jesus appears to be teaching here is don't rip up the weeds. Okay? Leave them to the final day of judgment. Because in ripping up the weeds, there's a danger we might damage the wheat that grows beside it. And so the kingdom worker, okay, each of us as if we are a Christian, our focus is not to rip weeds up, our focus is to sow seeds. Okay, that is what we're to keep focused on and to leave the other bit to God. It's as though God is really saying, you know, don't judge people, leave that bit to God, but feed people and sow seed as widely um, as possible. That's our work and the other isn't. And uh, often we try to clean everything up and we kind of pull, pull the weeds up out of our groups, out of our communities, but so often churches get broken um, in the process of doing that. So we're to sow seed widely and we're to feed good spiritual food into everyone and, uh, and pray that God will do what he does. But it might, God ask, we've got to ask the question of ourselves and that is, are we really in the faith? Are we really wheat and not weeds? 
Um, and it's a good question to ask. Just by coming to church doesn't make you wheat. Okay? Just because you have a partner who's a Christian or you have a parent who's a Christian doesn't necessarily make you wheat. Okay? It's something that we need for ourselves. So the question this morning for each one of us is whose disciple are you? Okay? Who do you really follow? Okay? Who teaches you life? Um, because every one of us is shaped by someone. Okay, we all have to learn life somehow. We, we are, as human beings are desperate to know how to live life. And we will learn it, we'll keep on learning it from others. It might be our parents, it might be our teachers, it might be our peers. You may even think, well, I'm just my own person, I, I do all that myself. Um, although you could argue that because um, we're only like that because we've been mastered by culture or someone who said you know, individualistic culture is the way to go. And we, we kind of go down that line. It may be through others, it may be through the media. Who knows? The reality is most of us are probably a disciple of several somebodies. Okay? We've been shaped by a number of people in our lives. And it's very likely that, that not all of them are, are good for us. Or it may even be there's a conflicted uh, approach in that people pull us in this direction, others pull us in that direction. Um, and there's not a kind of integration to it. I think in life it starts when we're very young, as you know, we've got our parents or our guardians or our siblings who influence our lives. Then it moves on to our teachers and our friends and our peers. Sometimes that becomes a gang culture that shapes it or a team that we become part of or a movement that we get interested in. Um, it can include some quite powerful people. You know, if you join the armed services, you're very influenced by that culture. If you go to a university, you're quite strongly influenced by your supervisors, your professors. Um, if you uh, get involved in a political interest, then you'll be shaped quite strongly by their ideologies and by some characters there. It may be a sports uh, personality. It may be a musician. You know, it may be one song, one set of lyrics that you've taken as your life rule of how you live by. We are continually looking for things to give us an anchor on how to live life, how to deal with situations that we come across. Because every one of us is looking for a way to believe, so a way to live and behave towards others, towards ourselves, and towards God. And uh, we're desperate for a compass for life. Even if it's wrong, we probably don't mind. We just need something, and that can make us quite vulnerable. So the question this morning is, whose disciple are you? Okay. Are you really wheat? Who do you really follow? I love this paraphrase from uh, the message version of Matthew 7, uh, verses 13 to 14. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Or as Val read from the New International Version, the same passage, enter through the narrow gates, for wide is the gate and broad is a path that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus' basic message in life was rethink your life in the light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is now open to all. Okay, he came and said the kingdom of heaven is near. It's open to all. Repent, turn, rethink your life in the light of that. And his message presents to us that the resources needed to live that life are totally available to us. Okay, heaven is now open. The resources of God are open to us to live the life 
that he calls us to. He says, follow me, you know, be my students, be my apprentices in kingdom living. Be my disciple and uh, you will produce much fruit. So wide is the love of God. Wide is his invitation, but narrow is the gate. Narrow is the path that leads to life. Even Jesus himself, you know, there were thousands of people that followed Jesus during his ministry. After his death, it was only hundreds, okay, and, until the, the, the church started. Okay, so many people dropped off. It went from wide to narrow. And Jesus teaches here that there are two gates, okay, there are two paths, and there are two destinations. The broad path, the wide gate, he says, is crowded. Crowded, as the message says, the market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. It's about maximum pleasure. It's about maximum success. It's about maximum money. It's all about me and whatever suits us. Yet, the broad path, says Jesus, leads to destruction. Okay, it leads to destruction. Of course, it doesn't say that. It doesn't have a big sign on it saying destruction this way. Okay, it's a really nice, attractive, glossy brochure. And if it even mentions it at all, it's in font size two small print somewhere hidden around the back. Okay, it's not obvious to us in the world. And so we're drawn into it. You know, tantalizingly attractive uh, it is in many ways. But it's the narrow gate. It's the narrow path, he says, that leads to life. And he says far fewer people find it. <clears throat> Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, in the chapters before this, in Matthew 5, 6, and into 7, he's talking so much about the fact that it's about the inner life. It's about the inner attitudes of our hearts. That whole sermon is about that. Um, it's not about just looking good on the outside. And he carries on in Matthew 7, unpacking the small print a little bit with four pictures. And they're pictures that help us to try to not miss the path into real life with him. The first picture is this. Watch out for false prophets, verse 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So Jesus warns us against all of those who will mislead us in life. There are many who will try to mislead us in life. They may look good on the outside, but inwardly they're led by their own desires. And uh, we've seen that in the earlier teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's about seeing the real inside that matters. He says, outwardly, they look like nice, fluffy sheep. But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves looking for nice, fluffy sheep to eat. Okay? They are, they're there to use us and, uh, and take us for their own purposes. So in life, whose disciple are we really? Because we're to beware in life that we're not misled. He then goes on and he teaches us that the key to identifying such characters is to watch what they do in life, not to listen to what they say. And so often we, we take teaching or we read books or whatever and people we don't even know. Um, and it's understanding where someone, how do they live their life? They may look great in public, but what are they like in private? Um, verse 17, he goes on and he says, every good fruit, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruits. Okay, they're, they're rotten inside. And if you've ever seen a diseased tree, it can look great on the outside. It's only the core of the trunk that's actually kind of rotten. It's only when you start knocking on it or digging into it that you begin to realize that. Verse 20 says, by their fruit you will recognize them. This is the fruit of inner character, not outward performance. You know, again, look great on the outside, but on the inside and in the integrity of life, it's not there. So we're to be aware. 
In fact, he, he moves on and says uh, even more than that. He says that people who, who claim to be Christian can apparently have done amazing things in his name. He says, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so the, the picture here is one of, of final judgment, of standing and giving account of our lives uh, before God and determining that destination. And those to be trusted, says Jesus, are those who've actually learned to do what God has asked us to do, to live this life that he calls us to, this, this life on the narrow path through the narrow gate um, that follows him. And he says, calling him Lord or even doing astounding things in his name is no substitute to doing the will of God in your life. The one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father in heaven, verse 21, which is to believe in the Son, to believe in Jesus, to follow him and to live out his ways wholeheartedly in our lives and to find fulfillment in joyful obedience of him. So whose disciple are you, really? Um, he goes on into the end of chapter seven of Matthew and he talks about the two houses, building those two houses, one on the rock, one on the sand. Uh, this guy's been digging, I think he's resting up there because he's been digging down to get to the rock. Okay? And when he's got to the rock, then he's starting to lay his foundations. Okay? He's worked hard to do that rather than just building it on the sands, building it on the surface. Because both of those houses, says Jesus, are hit by storms. Okay? doesn't matter which you are, you're gonna get the real things of life are gonna hit you regardless of who you are. But the one that's built on the rock will stand and the one that's built on sand will fall. And again, that is a picture of life. It's another way of talking about, is it the wide path or is it the narrow path? Is it the rocky foundation? Is it the sandy foundation? And when we hear his words and when we put them into practice, when we live them out, when we live them out in our families, when we live them out in our workplaces, in our relationships, with our, our, our money, whatever it is, you know, when we, who we are when nobody's looking is what it's all about. And uh, when we do that, we are building the house of our lives to be totally indestructible, whatever comes our way. And when we don't, we effectively kind of step out of God's blessing, if you like, okay, his promises. Um, it's not an easy life. You know, the path is narrow, literally difficult, okay? But God says it comes with his promises. It comes with his presence, and it comes with his blessing. So as we step onto that path, all of those things come to us. Jesus' commitment to us, an absolute commitment to us, is to be with us on this path through life. The very last bit of Matthew's gospel, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. I will be with you. That is his absolute commitment to us. We might prefer the crowds rather than walking the other way. It might feel like swimming against the tide at times, you know, and we might feel like giving up on that. Um, but when we do, God's presence is with us and God's promises are with us. We might not understand everything. We don't live by understanding. We live by faith. We live with his promises. So we have God's promises with us, but when we walk off that path, then actually we start to lose, 
those promises. We start to miss his presence uh, with us. Um, it's a little bit like trying to cash a check that's, that's not yours or trying to use somebody's card, money card that isn't yours. It's on someone else's account. You know, at best it works now and again, but generally it doesn't work um, because we're not, it's not ours. It's not something that we're walking on um, ourselves. But when we continue to do everything in life in his name, on his behalf, for him, in his place, then his promises and his provision are absolutely with us. We trust him, we obey him, and we find ourselves walking in his blessing. The disciples were Jesus' apprentices. You know, they, they, they learned how to live with him. They learned all about the width and the breadth of God's love, his inclusivity of people and his love. And they also learned the narrow way of discipleship, you know, the, the road less traveled. Um, and they, they kind of stuck with him, or most of them did anyway. And when Jesus left them, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but actually I'm going to give you another one. I'm going to give you one just like me um, to strengthen your life. Provision has been made so that you can still learn from Jesus. You can still know Jesus teaching you each day. This is what he he says in um, John chapter 14. This is the key. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or strengthener to help you. And he will be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So literally another strengthener, someone who will come alongside us to help us walk this narrow path. Um, Last week was Pentecost Sunday when we remember when the spirit of God was poured out uh, upon, upon the church, upon his people. But the human world can't see him. The human world doesn't get the spirit of God because he's invisible. He doesn't appear to the five senses. Um, and therefore, it can't see him and therefore can't know him, writes uh, John, or says Jesus, because he is spiritual in nature. God, God's spirit is his spiritual nature of God, which is what God is. And on the narrow path, we are not left alone. We have the Spirit of God who will strengthen us and walk with us um, in every part of life. And so because of God's Spirit, we can spend time with Jesus and we can learn from Jesus and we can be changed by him. And so the reality of the kingdom life is this inner one. It's simply coming before God. It starts in the hidden place, you and God, and just receiving everything that God has for our lives, receiving his spirit in our lives, being engulfed by his spirit in our lives. And there we find God's presence. There we find, with his word, God's promises. And the two of those come together, and they are his commitment to us to walk on the narrow path that will bring his life. And what does he say? He says, and I will do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. And this incredible promise of God's spirit being poured out and given to us is then flung wide open again. He says it's not just for you disciples. It's not just for you people in Jerusalem. It's for everyone in Jerusalem. It's for everyone in the world. It's for every generation to come. It's for every ethnic group across this planet. It is for everyone. And it's for each one of us today. So as we land this this morning, maybe the bands could come up. But the question is, whose disciple are you really? Okay. Who are you actually learning life from? 
Or whose disciple do you really want to be? Do you really want to learn from this Jesus? You know, because that question will determine whether we're on a path to destruction or whether we're on a path to everlasting life. And every one of us is to simply rethink our lives in the light of the fact that the kingdom of God is now fully available to us, that the resources of God are there and open to all. But each one of us has that choice. Let's pray 